if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Our guest today at Horse Chats is Sarah Schloter. Now, Sarah's a psychotherapist by trade, and she focuses on horse-human dynamics, and I particularly want to talk to Sarah today about equine-assisted trauma recovery and also trauma-informed horsemanship. So a little bit of a slant there on, I suppose it's still horse-human dynamics, but I think Sarah's going to bring some very interesting ideas into the conversation here today at Horse Chats. But before I introduce you to Sarah, I just want to remind you about the vision for International Horse College. The vision is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people. And if you've got the same vision as International Horse College, then have a look at the website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, Sarah, today, how are you? Uh, well, thanks, Glennis. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very well. And Sarah, you know, I mean, I, you've come very highly recommended, so I'm looking forward to talking to you. But before we even get started, a favourite quote. If you've got a favourite quote that you'd like to talk to us about, and the reason I say the favourite quote is just so that people can get a bit more in-depth information about you and the way you feel about things before we get started. So what's a quote you'd like to talk to us about today? Yeah, and it, I think it'll be more of a principle than a quote, if okay. that would be okay. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Sure. And, and, where, and I think it speaks to what you were talking about, about horse-human dynamics, which mm-hmm. is my main area of interest. And when I think about our relationships with our horses, one question I often tell people or ask people is, you know, is your relationship with your horse a, a, a two-sided relationship or is it a one-sided relationship? Mm. And our relationships with our horses often reflect our relationships within ourselves and our relationships in other places in our lives. And if we're not doing our own work in terms of looking at our trauma histories, our relational histories, our patterns uh, of interpersonal dynamics, our attachment styles, our nervous system dysregulation or regulation, uh, if we're not looking at those things, it's very, very easy to misunderstand the horse and the nature of the horse-human relationship and blame the horse for very normal reactions to um, what we're approaching them with within ourselves. Okay. It's interesting that you said that um, the relationship with your horse is often a reflection on other relationships, and I suppose that's where you come in with your work as a psychotherapist. Correct, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Mm-hmm. Now, you've combined two things here. You know, you've mm-hmm. combined what I presume was your, you know, your career, your um, what you had done with your passion, which is horses. Is mm-hmm. that how it came about? How did you actually start in this area of work? Well, you know, it's really interesting. And I, I guess my first question back to you, Glennis, is mm. how long do we have for this podcast? Oh. <laughs> that'll, help that'll help me sort of structure sure, my answer sure. to that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Look, it depends on your answer, seriously. Okay. You know, I think ah. you, you tell me and I think... If it's so long as, you know, I think I've been told that you can be short and boring or long and interesting, but you can't be long and boring. So as long as we keep it interesting, we can keep going. <laughs> great. So th- that's great. Thanks so much. I should have asked that before we hit <laughs> Not a problem. That's, that's fine. Um, so interestingly, so I've always loved animals mm-hmm. and I've always had a heart for helping. And when I was very, very small, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I mean, you know, kids play make believe and so on. Right. And I played make believe veterinarian. I had an aunt who gave me a white lab coat because she was a nurse and I had like (laughs) a fake stethoscope and would play. But I wasn't about horses at that time, although I did have a stuffed horse um, to play with. It was mostly dogs and cats. And and that's what we grew up with. We grew up um, living on many, many rural properties, but my family is not a horse family. Uh, You have to look back many generations within my family to find horses. And if I forget, please remind me before we move on to the next question to tell you about the tie-in with the horse trauma in my family history that I recently learned about in the last year, Mm -hmm. um, which may actually explain why this whole draw to horses and horse trauma and human trauma might be in my blood. 
Um, and that is a really fascinating piece of the story. But as a child, I was not a, a horsey kid. I, I was not raised in a horsey family. Um, one of our first homes actually was a, a, a small horse property um, that had a paddock area in the back. And I only found out as a grown-up that the um, shed, what I thought was a shed where we were piling our wood every winter, was yeah. actually a running shelter. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh gosh, you know, and the gate that we always used to climb to go over into the back area was yeah. not just a regular gate. It was a horse gate, you know, yes. and, and there was a, a stream and I'm like, gosh, you know, I, so I feel like it's been calling to me for a long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I became very horsey as a teenager, as a lot of, um, female identified persons are, we, yep. we get very horsey as teens. And so I had a phase of being very horsey as a teen. My first introduction to um, horses as a teen was through a best friend of mine who was horse crazy. Um, I read all the Walter Farley books and I loved the man from Snow River movies. Did you? Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. That was, that was such an international hit. And, uh -huh. um, you know, I know that's, um, that was an, uh, very much an Australian, um, an Australian tradition. It's interesting though, movies. because you know, yeah. I saw when I first saw even the first movie, it was in Australia. Yeah. But then, sure. then I was in the states, and I yeah. saw it with a few Americans, and some of yeah. the jokes that I was cracking up laughing because I got it. Some of the Americans yeah. didn't get it because they didn't get the um, the subtleties of the language. Totally. Mm, yes. Mm, mm. And so I've, I'm, I'm full aware of the fact that there are probably, <laughs> you know, language-based sort of linguistic differences and yep. pieces that I go, okay, I, th I think that means something, mm. but I'm not quite sure what it is. Um, and um, so I, but even so, what's really fascinating is that it seems to have this international appeal and sure. I, I loved it. I, I fell in love with those movies and, and just watched them, you know, religiously and over and over again and always dreamt of doing the uh, high country tours with Charlie Lovick and his family down in the Victorian high country, which I heard recently in the last two years that they've retired and shut down their their um, horse tours to uh, the Snow River movie sites, which was such a huge disappointment for me, but it was something I always wanted to do. So I, I got into horses more as I became an adult, and uh, but it did start there. My interest in combining the human-animal connection in my understanding of what's going on uh, relationally started with my dogs, and I started to volunteer in a nursing home program. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting really early on, my first learning around animals and animals expressing consent mm -hmm. uh, or voicing when they don't want to show consent yep. um, was with my dog. And I had gotten her as a rescue and we were volunteering in this nursing home and it started to become really evident to me. And I, I'm ashamed to admit that it took me a little bit longer than it would now mm -hmm. <laughs> to pick up on this. But um, in the beginning, I was just so enthusiastic and was sort of not really seeing that she was trying to communicate no to me yeah. uh, about this venture that we were in. And I eventually retired her and I was like, you know what? She's been trying to tell me for a while that she's not liking this anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she showed it through what we now know are calming signals and stress responses and all these things. And I, I was like, man, you know, and what was really fascinating to me this early on, this was back in 2003. And I, I was very, very interested in the fact that the nursing home residents didn't seem to notice that she was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, how could they, if I wasn't noticing it, yes, but you know, yes. you know, of course, because I'm supposed to be there as the handler and mm -hmm. model that. But even when I noticed that she wasn't willing to do it, it kind of put me at odds with the program because the program was about them getting to touch the animal. Yep. And, and this whole idea of consent in relationship and bi-directional relationships with animals and touch and all this stuff started to congeal back then. That's a good 17 years ago now, my goodness. And so shortly after that, I went to the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada, where I did my master's degree in counseling psychology and started to get interested in the field of working with trauma. So I focused my degree on understanding trauma. And during that process, I got exposed to a number of different trauma therapies that I since went and got training in, which is a, another conversation perhaps for later in our call. Um, but I got interested in trauma and I started to really get interested again in the whole field of animal assisted 
whatever you want mm, to call it, mm. and equine assisted slash facilitated slash whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I made friends. I started to make colleagues. I started to get very, very involved in that field, even though I felt like a huge imposter at the time because I didn't come from a horsey background. You know, I was getting into it as an adult, a young adult, mind you, but still. And I, I, um, I started to get very, very passionate about understanding. And my early forays into understanding horses were, you know, at the time, um, was, well, there's either the traditional way, which is very aggressive and hard handed and, you know, uh, or this whole new thing of natural horsemanship and, you know, and let's do it that way. And so I go, you know, back then we didn't know much different. It just seemed to be the best alternative, you know, compared to what, what else was available. So, you know, that's what was, that was the lesser of the evils at the time. And so that a lot of us kind of came through that era of, well, let's just do natural horsemanship instead of doing traditional stuff. And there's a place for pressure release work, of course. And that's sort of where I I am now as I come at it from a more behavioral, broader standpoint of there's a room for pressure and release and there's a room for positive reinforcement and both can be done really well and both can be done very inappropriately. Yep. And, you know, so I've kind of evolved, but back then I, I was, yay, natural horsemanship. I was all about that and was learning all about those things. And during this time I was combining my understanding of psychotherapy and doing all these trauma trainings and working with various approaches for working with human trauma. Somatic experiencing was one, EMDR is another one. And I since sort of expanded my toolkit and have plenty of other trauma therapies in my, under my belt now. But as I was learning these trauma therapies, I was like, goodness, one common factor to most of the modern trauma therapies is that they're based in mammalian psychophysiology. What does that mean? Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The psychophysiology, which is the neurobiology, the intersection between psychology and physiology, how our body and our mind intersect of mammals in general. Um, And these models of human trauma therapy were created based on these mammalian models, but the same knowledge was not being applied to the animals themselves, hadn't Mm -hmm. made it back to the horse industry, wasn't making it back to, you know, all these other areas. And I'm like, I'm sitting here as this apparently non-horse person looking into the horse industry from this external standpoint going, "Why why is this not being applied to the mammals? who were the very creatures who inspired these human trauma therapies, but were not giving the same respect to the animals and applying those same principles. Like what, what's the disconnect here? Um, and so I started to focus my studies more and more. I got more, you know, well-versed in horse stuff and, um, now have my own horses and have done many clinics and many approaches and many trainings and, and now feel much less imposter syndrome, you know, when I speak about horses and have since addressed that for myself. But I, I was always very fascinated at this disconnect between modern human trauma therapies and understanding horses. And what I kept seeing was, you know, these approaches where people are either blaming the horse or the human is misattuning to the horse and then blaming the horse for the horse's reaction. Mm -hmm. And, and I go, man, we do that in human relationships. It's called gaslighting, (laughs) you know, right. Where, where somebody mistreats somebody else or creates confusion for somebody else. And then that person has a very normal response of confusion or fear or activation or some sort of, you know, dysregulating kind of response. And then the original person whose behavior, the second person is reacting off of blames the second person for their reaction and makes them out to be the quote unquote crazy one. Yep. Yep. Right. While failing to look at the fact that this person's response makes a lot of sense given the context context and, you know, is an appropriate response based on what the original stimulus was, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I go, but we do that to our animals all the time. I've said that in many other podcasts that I've been invited to speak on. And I'm I'm saying it here. I want to evolve evolve beyond that inner call, but I want to start there because that's where I started to bridge the psychotherapy world with my understanding of horse-human relationships. And I go, there should be horse-human couples therapists, you know, (laughs) there needs to be couples therapists for horses and their humans because there's so much misattunement and gaslighting and projection and errors of, of communication. And what ends up happening is because horses traditionally have been um, subservient, they have been, you know, tools for human egos to ride around upon to gain points and gain glamour and prestige and what have you. Um, there's this this very authoritarian perspective of, you know, oddly enough, you know, 
horses should horses should be seen and not heard. I think of like the 1950s yes. baby boomers who were yep. born, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of children should be seen and not heard, and thou shalt do as I say, not as I do, and um, you know, suck it up, princess, and all this sort of mentality of having to shut down and shut up um, because that's what the parenting was at the time, because of as we know, trauma and various other cultural influences uh, and industrialization that, you know, all these things and religion and and so on and so forth. And I go, but we're, we're quote unquote, parenting our horses in the same way. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, we're, we're expecting horses to not have a voice, to shut up, to put up, you know, to be obedient. And if they're not obedient, they don't put up, they don't shut up. They're viewed to be disrespectful. And there are still people today who view children in the same way. There are still people today who view grown adults and relationships in the same way. And this whole thing around having a trauma lens came out of the, the human services field. And I go, why are we not having a trauma lens on horse-human relationships? Why is there not that same respect given to individuals to go, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you and how you've had to cope to adapt to what's happened, right? As opposed to there's something inherently wrong with you. Uh, Why are we not taking that and applying it to the horses? And thankfully, um, as I became more well-versed in the horse world, I started to learn that, of course, there's more beyond natural horsemanship, um, thankfully, you know, um, that natural horsemanship is but one small piece of the bigger puzzle of relating to horses. And, and so, um, I took a course in the last few years through the, um, International Association for Animal Behavior Consultants on working with fear horses. And they have a beautiful course that looks at something that a woman named Dr. Friedman came up with a number of years ago in working with carrots. And she called it the humane hierarchy. And what I thought was really interesting about the humane hierarchy is that it really represented, for me, the animal version of what I was talking about, which is this idea of a trauma-informed lens on horse-human relationships and behavior problems. And from a behaviorist standpoint, from a behavioral, an equine behavioral consultant standpoint, which I'm not one, but I really resonate with their perspective because it's what I do as a psychotherapist yep. without, yep. Being a, without being a behaviorist because we've evolved well beyond behaviorism in the human therapy world, which is what I'm promoting for the horse world, is Okay, so behaviorists look at the whole picture. They go, okay, humane hierarchy, according to Friedman, is we start with what are the antecedents? What are the conditions that are leading to the behavior problem? Right? Are and what are those conditions? Those conditions can be nearby, as in their recent, as in their immediate, or they're as in their further back in the history of the animal. Yep. Right? Are they relational dynamics? Are they environmental problems, like conditions in the environment that are creating the behavior problem? Are they historical issues, as in past trauma, past negative handling experiences, and so on and so forth? And then we look at that first. And if you can address the antecedents. First, often the behavior issues go away because we've addressed the conditions that are leading to the issues. And the goal is to do that first before trying to go and fix the problem, make the horse the problem, mm-hmm. right? Try to yes. fix the horse through various techniques. Yep. If we address yep. the, you know, the history, well, this is what we do as psychotherapists all the time. And so the bell started to go off for me. And I was like, gosh, that's really, really fascinating. And their perspective is, okay, start by addressing the antecedents. And then they start with, the Lima principle, which is the least uh, invasive, minimally, uh, minimally aversive, start there and then increase the intensity as things go on, as, as, as issues are not being addressed. So from their standpoint, it's not that you wouldn't do negative reinforcement. There's absolutely a place for that, right? Horses need to move away from pressure, <laughs> right? If you're yes. having, to move, you know, they need to learn how to do that. And they do that in their herds. The problem is it hasn't been done with a respect for the horse's thresholds of tolerance. It has not always been done with an understanding that horses can fall into shutdown responses, appeasement behaviors, um, and, and do things that look like they're calm, but really they're just going into a shutdown response. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at the thresholds and the nervous system states. And so what can happen with the cer- certain things like, like um, pressure release type methods, which again, there's nothing inherently wrong with. I'm not here to bash that at all, but I'm here to almost reclaim that 
that in a different way is that is it being done with respect to that and is it being done with respect for the relationship are we addressing the relational antecedents that are leading to the problems first before going into the other things and so that's one thing that isn't spoken about a lot in the human hierarchy is what are the relational conditions they look at things like handling techniques and you know mishandling techniques but they don't look at like the human handlers past traumas they don't look at the human handlers attachments right they don't look at all the psychotherapeutic components Mm -hmm. because that's not in the scope of practice of an equine behavior specialist Mm -hmm. they're not meant to be psychotherapists so i'm coming in with this extra lens going hey hey can i raise my hand here and point out (laughs) that we're still missing a chunk of the puzzle is that the human in the equation, it's not just handling. It's the human's traumas. It's the human's way that they were parented or not parented, as it were. It was the messages they learned about attachment. It's their attachment security or insecurity in relationships. And how does their attachment style lead them to relate to their horses or use particular training methods? They've actually done an interesting study on that. People's attachment styles will will determine to a certain degree what training methods they use and then what the horse's experience is as a result. And that's so fascinating. That's only just starting to be looked at. And yeah. and so this, this this combination is what really fascinates me. And it's because of my relationship with my own horses that I, I saw just how much I needed to practice what I preached. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't I wasn't seeing it. I chose to distrust all these awarenesses I was having and the knowledge that I had and put the trust in a horse trainer who didn't have those pieces because of my my imposter syndrome and and feeling like well this is a little woo-woo you know you know it's you know surely it's not important um and my horse ended up having major problems because I trusted a trainer yep and the trainer overwhelmed my horse Mm -hmm. and my trainer didn't do pressure release with respect for thresholds And I've had to redo all the relational repair and the attunement and the co-regulation so that my horse knew that my horse could trust me and trust and feel a sense of safety around my nervous system. Because when I was trying to treat my horse, I was trying to fix the problem. Let's use pressure release. Let's get heavy handed. You're afraid of objects now because you never used to be because you got overwhelmed by my former trainer. So I'm just going to keep going and, oh, he's being resistant because he doesn't want to do the thing. He knows what you're asking. You just got to ask harder. Mm. And I would, and that's not in accordance with the humane hierarchy. That's not in accordance with what I knew as a trauma therapist. Mm. I had to repair my relationship with him because he didn't feel safe with me. Yep. I had to show him that I could attune and recognize his signs of no. I could recognize his thresholds and back off. And release the pressure, not when he gave me what he what I wanted, but I released the pressure when I saw his first sign of no. Yeah, yeah. And people go, but you're basically rewarding him for not doing what you ask. And I go, exactly. <laughs> Sarah, when I said you go for it, you know, don't put a time on it, but make it interesting. I think, wow, I'm just glad I let you run with that because that was, Thank you. That was a brilliant answer. You didn't tell us about the horse trauma in the family yet, but... I'm, no. I'm really enjoying chatting to you. I think that the way that you're coming in, you know, with yeah. with the whole respect for the horse, I'm really enjoying this. But, uh, yes, the horse trauma in the family, if you're ready for that. Sure. But, but don't you're stop talking because every time you start yeah. talking, I just think, wow, there's a bit more education and a bit more education. Sure. Mm, sure. Mm. And, and feel free to jump in. I can, when people know me from podcasts, so people have heard <laughs> me before, if any of your listeners have heard me before, they'll know I tend to go and go and go. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but you're so interesting. Yeah. Sometimes I get very passionate about what I talk about and it's hard for me to like pace it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, so, so I, I do work on my moderation skills and my self-regulations a lot better Uh than it once was. And sometimes (laughs) I still do get carried away. So, um, but my horse family trauma. So I discovered this last summer, I went to a place about two hours from here where we have some distant relatives. And I met up with a number of much older distant relatives that I'd never met. They're second and third cousins twice Mm -hmm. removed. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, but we all share common ancestors, you know, within five generations. And so we we got together and, and we all knew of each other, but we just hadn't had a chance to really meet and get together. And because they're much older than me, I was the youngest person there. I think we were a group of like seven people and I 
I, as the 40 year old, was like, <laughs> everyone was in their like 70s, 80s, 60s, maybe. And so uh, I'm sitting there and we're looking at the mass collection of like photographs and family trees. And, and our family's always been into that. And it's something I've always really found interesting since I was a child. And so I got to really just really dive deep into some of that stuff. And as they were telling old stories, old stories of like, you know, second aunt, second great aunt's <laughs> twice removed, you know, like these kinds of things, I fell upon a photograph of a, of a woman and a foal. And I asked what that was about, and I'm probably going to mess up some of the details, but what I do remember, and I'm glad I, I actually videotaped that meeting that day. I should probably go back and rewatch that and, and see what the actual details were, but um, the woman in question was an aunt of my direct ancestor. Okay. And so like, we're talking distance here, um, but it's way back in the bloodline. And so this aunt of my direct great, I think my great, great grandmother, her aunt, um, had a horse farm and, uh, well, a farm, it wasn't a horse farm per se. They weren't breeders necessarily. Um, but they, they had a farm and back in the day, you know, you had horses to help the land, you know, the plowing and all this. And, um, there's a photograph of her with a foal, uh, probably a colt of some kind, not a baby baby, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's not a newborn, but not older either. It's probably below the age of being a yearling. And there was a a statement on the back. And one of the women who was a direct descendant of this distant aunt, uh, great, great aunt told me the story. And she said, well, this, this horse, forget the story exactly of what happened, but the horse got caught up in a rope and was choking to death. Mm -hmm. And the great aunt came along and rescued the foal, and the foal was able to live. And it, the, the foal was apparently near death, and, and this was a rather tragic story. I forget the story of why they had the foal in the first place. There's more details to it than this, of course. But it was this example of a woman within my bloodline who saved a horse from trauma. Mm-hmm. And yep. I was like, why is it that here I am, you know, and, you know, modern, you know, a couple hundred years later, why is it as a person who does not have any immediate family within at least two, three generations who've had horses, who is, you know, not only a psychotherapist, but super passionate about horses and horse human trauma and, and horse trauma specifically too, and, and being an advocate for horse trauma. And I go, well, I wonder if there's some blood memory there. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 Careers in the Horse Industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine... Maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Do you think it's blood memory, though, or do you think that that deep down as a human we all Mm. want to be in the situation where we want to stop any sort of trauma? Yeah. Well, and here's what's really interesting, too. If you have a history of your own trauma, Mm -hmm. there's more of an impetus um, to make that your life's vocation, for instance. Yep. Right. So most of us who are in the psychotherapy field um, are very well aware of the fact that most of us are wounded healers of some kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, people tend to know it's, you know, I was talking with a colleague of mine the other day about people whose children become therapists. And are are all those people aware that the kids become therapists because <laughs> of their family of origin issues? And do you are you aware of that? Uh, you know, we had an interesting um, conversation about that. And I thought that was interesting not to cast blame or to point the finger, but just more of a you know, uh, just a, a rueful kind of awareness around that. And so this idea that we, we become, most of us who become helpers in some way, shape or form are, is often because we, as young people, experienced our own harm, our own difficulties, and or learn to cope by being little helpers or caretakers. Okay. So if we're thinking about, you know, the type of person that's mm-hmm. going to have a best relationship, you know, just their character traits. 
Mm-hmm. What sort of person is going to have the best relationship with the horse? I would say it's somebody who will have what we might say um, secure attachment mm-hmm. or you, not all of us had secure attachment growing up. I mean, you know, I'm one of them. I had to work on it. Thankfully, there is a concept called earned secure attachment where we can work through our attachment difficulties and challenges in relationship and mm-hmm. become more secure in our relationships as a result of having worked at it. So um, hence why it's, it's got that name. I would say individuals who have done the work, who have a secure attachment or an earned secure attachment, who have done the work of recognizing and have the self-awareness in relationships, not just of themselves and what's going on inside, but also what's going on and being able to attune accurately to what's going on for the other in the relationship. And so um, they've done some interesting studies around, um, I'm trying to think of the actual study in question that's coming to mind, but there was a study that looks at, uh, in human relationships, um, individuals who have more accurate interoception. So interoception is the ability that we have to pay attention to our internal states, the information that comes to us from our body responses from the inside, right? And and have awareness of all the complexity inside of ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our, our um, sensations, the parts of our personality, all these pieces. When we have good interoception, good connection with our gut responses, right? Our nervous system yep. responses, the more we have accuracy there, the more um, accuracy there is in attunement with others and then the more um, secure or more rewarding or safe relationships are perceived to be. Okay. Yes. Wow. Sarah, I'm just really enjoying your conversation and your approach. Now, I'm finding it fresh, you know, similar, Mm -hmm. similar Mm -hmm. but different. Yes, yes. But when you first started, what did people, mm-hmm. did they go, you're a bit woo-woo, you know, you're a bit come on <laughs> off the track. Did you get that when you first started? Uh, Tell us. Well, well, yeah, it's interesting because because like I'm coming into this as a psychotherapist, mm. where I started to bring in the horse-human relationship, aside from my own relationship with my horse and having had to figure that out um, and apply, was it therapist heal thyself or doctor or physician heal thyself? <laughs> I had to apply what I knew to my own relationship with my horse and stop Um, distrusting myself uh, and assuming that I had to put my faith in other people. Um, Not that it's wrong to do so, but when your gut sense is screaming at you and you put your horse in the hands of somebody else and it's messing up your horse more, Mm -hmm. um, you kind of get to a point where you have to learn to listen to that. Mm-hmm. and and start to trust yourself. So uh, in the beginning, it was just me and my horse or horses. Yep. Um, and then I also started to um, do what we might call equine-facilitated psychotherapy, where I'm bringing my psychotherapy clients out to the farm, and we're having interactions with the horses, and we're exploring horse-human dynamics. And from within that perspective, it's not really seen as woo. The clients get it, right? Okay. Yep. And, yeah. And these clients, like, they, they see the relationship unfolding. They see the immediacy in the moment of what the horse is communicating and what they're noticing in their bodies, you know, and learning to track their nervous system. Um, the, the in-office therapies that I use, I use when I'm out with the horses as well. So I'm still applying the same nervous system principles and attachment principles that I would in the office within the human-human relationship out in the pasture. And clients get it. Like, people are getting it. And and these are not necessarily horse people. Mm-hmm. And I found the people who got it the most easily were people who did not necessarily have a horse background or for whom the horse background was like, you know, a pony ride at a birthday party at age yep, seven. Yep, yep, You know, yep. right? They don't have a lot of unlearning to do. What about horse people then? Have they been a challenge? Uh, depends on the horse person. So, okay. so some horse persons who have come to me as clients, the ones who are drawn to me self-select usually to come and see me, okay. right? They read, they yep. read my website, they see my materials, they see what I have to say, right? They might have read posts that I've written on social media. They might have heard um, podcasts. They might have read book chapters I've written. And, and so they, they are already coming because they like the perspective that I'm bringing. Yes. They buy into the approach that I'm promoting. And so they're coming in already with that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really interesting was I remember uh, a time a number of years ago where I collaborated with a horse professional. Yep. You know, and we 
we were doing some work together and the, the horse professionals bringing in their perspective and their body of knowledge. And they were really keen on learning what I had to say. And I was bringing in my pieces. Um, and what I thought was really interesting was the person was super keen on wanting to continue and let's do some cool stuff together. But then over time, like the relationship sort of petered out and that, that person was becoming and harder and harder to reach. And we had done some really neat work together with, with clients, mm-hmm. with horses. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, it was horse persons and it was horse persons within the horse-human relationship. And what was really interesting was the enthusiasm that this person had for the work and what I was promoting kind of waned. And over a number of months, they kind of disappeared. And, you know, every once in a while, I would check in and say, hey, are you still interested in doing stuff? You know, we had such a great time and the clients got so much out of it. And they really took away a lot in terms of their horsemanship and their understanding of their own relationships with their own horses, which is different from working with clients who might not have horses, yep, yep. you know? Um, and, um, so it was kind of my twist on the reverse, you know, there's equine assisted therapy and I was calling that therapist assisted horsemanship, um, you know, as a bit yep. of a twist yep. on the same yep. concept. And that's, you know, my way of sort of buffering it. I couldn't call it couples therapy for the horse human relationship because of legality issues. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, I would have been accused of malpractice or misconduct, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm just like, that's unfortunate because that's really what it is. I mean, it's couples therapy for the horse human relationship, but I couldn't use that in my marketing. And I understand why it's just, it's just too bad. Um, but I said, gosh, we got so far and, 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 you know, it was so fascinating. You could see people, you know, recognizing as I was working with them and as they were getting horsemanship instruction and we were doing horse human stuff together, like catching the, you know, the attachment stuff and the anxiety patterns and, and the, how the human's anxiety was resulting in difficulties in the saddle or difficulties relating on the ground or how the horse's anxiety was actually pinging off the human's anxiety or how the human's dissociation was resulting in horse behaviors that they were assuming were, you know, um, you know, disrespect, but in reality it wasn't disrespect. It was, it was actually the horse trying to nudge the client who was starting to get a little disconnected and, you know, and it was just so fascinating. And the person kind of, you know, quietly just stopped, you know, doing stuff with me and I never really understood why. And I understand, I think, you know, that person had other goals and dreams and such, you know, and perhaps that's all it was. But part of me wonders, was it that I was going to a level that was becoming uncomfortable Mm -hmm. for the person? And, you know, and I was, I was, was I challenging some of their long held beliefs about how they view horses and horse human relationships and horsemanship and equestrianship and and whatever? Like, was that putting them into contact with their own stuff that they hadn't worked on, you know, and that was uncomfortable. And and, and maybe that's not what was happening for this person, but I've since spoken to other people in the horse world and it's not that they see it as woo-woo per se. What I think starts to happen is that people come into contact with their own unresolved issues, their own unresolved stuff. Mm -hmm. They come into contact with their blind spots, their shame, right? Their discomfort. And they, they have something that we call cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is where your belief or beliefs no longer match up with the reality that you're learning about. And rather than embrace the new information that's coming in or the the new reality you're learning about, the discomfort that you're facing is so uncomfortable that you will dismiss the new information as being valid and hunker down and double down on your original position because it, it's, it's a way to to remove the discomfort of, oh gosh, I have to actually face my shame, face my stuff, face my discomforts, um, uh, deconstruct what I've always thought to be true. And, and that's really uncomfortable. And a number of people, they're maybe not in a place of being ready to do that yet. And so they will just write something off perhaps as woo-woo um, or, oh, that's too complicated. Or that's, um, my classic is, oh, that's anthropomorphizing. You're okay. anthropomorphizing the horse. Okay. And that has become such a dirty word for me uh, because it's, it, to me, it is the height of arrogance and shame and ego to, to, to say that it is anthropomorphic to look at what is going on in the horse-human 
shall I say, attachment dynamic, for instance, mm-hmm. in the horseman relationship, for instance, and and say, well, you know, let's notice the horse's, you know, consent or lack of consent, or when when are they dissociating? When are they shutting down? When are they appeasing? Are they in distress? You know, are they, you know, are they noticing anxiety? And, and people saying, well, that's just anthropomorphizing the horse. I go, no, that's what I call mammalomorphism. If humans and non-human animals all experience trauma, they all experience addictive behaviors to cope with the trauma and the adversity and the, the deprivation and the, you know, the, the stress. They, they all have pr- um, chronic obsessive compulsive behaviors to cope with stressors and captivity conditions and handling things. All mammals have a nervous system. All mammals have the ability to appease, to go into fight or flight, to go into shutdown. You know, all animals can express a yes and a no. That's not anthropomorphizing. It is arrogant to think that we are the only mammals on the planet that have those things, especially when science proves that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that's where I kind of go, wow. So people will, people who have written me off, and I, I don't know, um, I don't know if too many who have, probably because they don't stick around. <laughs> you know, I, I tend to have a large following because the p- people are hearing what I'm saying and they, and they like it. It resonates for them. Yep. Um, and it's the people who are willing to do the work. It's people who are willing to look at themselves, who recognize themselves in their relationship with their horse and go, wow, that is not def- any different from my relationship with my four ex-husbands or, <laughs> or my father or my stepmother or my boss. You know, the, the same, it's, it's, it's all relationship. And we're all nervous systems and all nervous systems, in spite of interspecies differences, there are interspecies differences. We do need to understand horses as horses. And we're also doing the horse-human relationship a disservice when we do not recognize the commonalities. Yeah, I, I just look back on the history of the human being. It used to be if yeah. anyone, if anyone had coloured skin, they didn't yeah. have yeah. the intelligence of a person with white skin. You know, that that's was, right. and I mean, that's obviously been been proven wrong. You know, it's just something that sometimes you've just got to open your mind to the possibilities of. Um, that's right. You know, maybe mammals have a little bit more. Than what we give them credit for. Oh yes, mm. it's, it's speciesism, right? There's racism and ableism and cultural discrimination and r- discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity sure. and you know um, religion and you know language and skin tone and all ethnicity and all these things. And and um, I think I mentioned ableism and appearance. Gosh, there's there's this discrimination based on just appearance and mm. weight, <laughs> you know, and all these things and. And there's speciesism. Mm-hmm. There's speciesism. There's a, a really neat um, a book called, I forget the title, I'm going to butcher it, um, but um, Some We Love, Some We Something, and Some We Eat, you know, and it's, it's <laughs> you know, and, and it's true, right? Yeah, like, you know, yeah. we will we'll easily eat a cow, but we'll yes. find it revolting to think about horses going off to slaughter, but sure. we have no problem going and buying cutlets of a pig in a grocery store, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to, like, you know, advocate for anything specific here, but I'm just trying to make the point that we have a really longstanding anthropocentric um, way of being in the world as a human species. We've become rather parasitic, as we can see from climate change and the bushfires in Australia and, you know, coronavirus now and all these things, right? Yep, yep. And wanting to get off of fossil fuels and mm. flying. And, and they call it the Anthropocene for a reason, Right. This is the first era in, in since the dawn of time, because every era in, in history has been given a name by yes. humans. Yes. Right. You know, and they all end with scene, C-E-N-E at the end, you mm-hmm. know, and like the Maya scene and the whatever. There's all these scenes. Right. I, I'm going to forget them all. Mm-hmm. And my child paleontologist self, I used to love dinosaurs and fossils and stuff is going to is kind of berating myself right now for <laughs> not all the all the names uh pleistocene there's one um but we have the anthropocene this is the first time that an era is marked by the influence of humankind on the devastation of the environment on other species on the planet etc cetera, etc cetera. Okay. and so that's this anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism and that is another reason why people might call this woo woo okay okay if you went out then in your um <laughs> in your role Working on therapist-assisted horsemanship. Sure. And and you had one lesson to give. You know, you'd have a group of riders, so thinking about the most common thing that they would have together with challenge or whatever common common Uh, challenge for them. If you had to give them all one standard 
lesson, you know, or something to tell them to think about? What would you say to them? Oh, gosh. Um, I would ask, I would ask them about what they're aware of is happening inside their bodies right now. Mm-hmm. And if they cannot feel their body, then that's good information for them. It's nothing to be scared of, right? We're, we're um, often enculturated to not be aware of our bodies. We're, we're, we actually treat our bodies the way we treat our horses often, as a set of wheels to get our big heads around on, right? <laughs> yep. You know, yep. We're, yep. we're very disconnected from our bodies. So we were disconnected from our horses, right? And this applies to other mammals and other animals as well, of course. Yep. And, you know, yep. it's not just horses, but we're being very horse-specific in this podcast. Um, but it's like we often are that disconnected from our bodies, too. Mm-hmm. And we, our relationship with our bodies is often very fraught with fear and shame and um, dissociation and um, anxiety and, and vigilance or hypervigilance. Uh, and, and so the more we can start to recognize and become what we might call embodied, the more we can recognize the degree to which we are disconnected from the different aspects of our experience. Because we don't just have a body. We have, we have sensations, impulses, um, emotional feelings, thoughts, beliefs, memories, mental images. We have parts of our personality, behaviors that are self-protective, even if they don't feel self-protective, that inner critic that we have is a self-protective response, right? Yeah. If I listen to my inner critic, then my inner critic is like, well, don't do that because da 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 and you're so stupid and what's wrong with you? That is intended to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's intended to protect us because if we listen to that, then we're going to try harder and work harder and try to appease more. And if we have a trainer, a horsemanship trainer, an equestrian coach, whatever, a riding instructor who on some level treats us and our horse the way our abusive grandfather did yes. or our, you know what I mean? Our yep. school teacher did, yep. you know, yep. if we have the unchecked, if we have not looked at our patterns of appeasement, mm-hmm. our patterns of dysregulation in our nervous system, where we start to get fearful. And then when we start to get fearful, our, we lose connection with our bodies and we feel panic. And then somebody tells us when we feel panic, just suck it up, hit them harder, do the thing. Mm. And we were told when we were children, when we felt scared, to just suck it up yep. and do the thing. Yep. We're, yep. We're, re, we're doing something called a reenactment, what mm-hmm. we call in psychotherapy, a reenactment, where we're repeating a familiar pattern, a familiar theme, or what some people might call a schema, right? A life theme, or a pattern in the relationship with the horse. And it plays out with, with trainers, with, with coaches. It, it plays out all the time. Mm-hmm. And coaches, unfortunately, and I wrote a blog post about this a year ago, where I I said, you know, it's so fascinating to me as a psychotherapist looking in on the horse industry. And and I look, and I'm not saying all coaches, all instructors are like this. There are plenty who are becoming more self-aware, who have done their therapy work, who are doing their therapy work, who are recognizing their part in the equation of what's playing out with the horse and the human. They're seeing it mm-hmm. and they're, they're yeah. addressing it. You recognize yeah. that the horse and the human, their responses might be playing off of theirs, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And so to help the horse and the human to have a different experience in the saddle or on the ground, the, the trainer has to be monitoring themselves, but that's still not across the board. Mm-hmm. In the therapy world, therapists know that if you're to become a therapist, you have to have done your own work, yep. right? We're yep. taught about how there's transference and countertransference. Transference is our clients' reactions to us, usually mm-hmm. based on their own histories and stuff and what triggers they have and what we represent for them and what have you and patterns of safety and relationship or not relationship. And therapists of various kinds have countertransference. We have our own personal responses to the client, whether that's a physiological activation response in our bodies, it's a personality behavior, it's an attachment thing, right? We, we have these things that go back and forth. And if we are not looking after our own internal process as therapists, as helpers, we're not going to be able to hold space and help our clients effectively. We're just going to repeat patterns for them. And, and unfortunately, that same stipulation, that same industry standard that is held for, for therapists, and not all therapists do this, but it's at least known within our industry that that's, it's, it's expected yep. and yep. highly, highly recommended. I do not see that as a requirement within the horse industry. No, no, it's not. It's quite different. And Sarah, I would love to open up this whole conversation. I think we can go and talk for another hour on mm-hmm. 
coaches, instructors, and it's, you know, I mean, as a coach myself, an instructor, this is something that I would like to talk about in a bit more detail. Can we get you back again, Sarah, to talk about that? I would love to. It would be very good, you know, and I I really like your approach. Um, Yes. So if people need to contact you, what's the best way? You know, if they need to contact you, is it through your website? I think Equisoma, they'll be able to contact you through the Horse Chats website. So just go to horsechats.com and search for Sarah. If you can't get the Schloter, don't worry about that. Just search for Sarah and you'll (laughs) find Sarah. But what's the best way if they're going to contact you directly now? Yeah, um, so uh, the website is definitely the best way to start. Um, Info at equisoma.com, so E-Q-U-U-S-O-M-A, equus and soma, but only one S. Equus, of course, horse, and soma meaning the body. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and you can check me out there. I have my personal website for my in-office private practice, um, which is sarahschlote.com or sarahschlote.com. Um, and then there's, of course, Facebook. I do have a LinkedIn account. If you try to add me on LinkedIn, please bear with me. I'm not very active on there. Um, I I think it was two years before I logged back in again, and somebody had sent me a message two years ago, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm just not very good. Um, but on social media, I have a Facebook account, Sarah Schlody. You can look me up. I have an Equisoma Facebook page, as well as an Equisoma group where we talk about neuroscience and trauma in horses and humans, and we talk about attachment, and we talk about polyvagal theory, which is a whole other conversation. Um, and so, and we talk about research and practice and it's just a really neat place uh, so people are welcome to join there as well uh, I will be for um, uh, we do also run a number of trainings every year um, and so if you go to the events listings you'll see where you can learn more about this stuff uh, in person and get a deeper dive into some of this material and also material that we haven't even talked about which we can talk about in our next podcast that would be wonderful yeah, looking cool. forward to it Sarah and thank you Great. very much for your time today um, you know I know you're a busy person so I, I think it's been wonderful talking to you and looking forward to catching up again lovely thanks so much for your time as well bye-bye bye-bye if you've enjoyed this chat then please comment rate and subscribe if you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests then please contact us through horsechats.com and while you're online have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com registered training organization 31352 Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.